Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Hey, everybody, we're back again. I know we're late again, and I know we keep saying we're not going to be, but this is just our life right now, so everyone's (laughs) just got to roll with it. But welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. I'm Katie. And I'm Mandy. And we are two white women who have been friends since we were like 10 years old and are very deeply committed to learning about how white women have been shitty throughout history. And luckily slash unluckily... Luckily, because we love doing this podcast, there's like endless content. Unluckily, Mm -hmm. for everyone who ever has had to deal with white women, like that's the that's the truth of it. Um, (laughs) We, yeah, I we were just talking about how we are, and I was just thinking this too that we're coming up on our year anniversary of when we started planning for the podcast. It was this time last year that we. We're like working on the logo and getting Mm -hmm. theme music and, you know, putting it out there. And then you were remembering when we recorded our first episode. Yeah, because we recorded the first episode the day of the inauguration and we were recording having zero clue that the insurrection was happening. Yes, exactly. Like it was happening as we were recording. And I remember if you all listened to the first episode, we're like, it's January 6th. Things are great. Yay. (laughs) Everything's Uh, lovely. (laughs) uh, But I was also thinking like, this year's mm-hmm. gone by so fast and I can't believe how fast time keeps going by. And then I thought, mm-hmm. how has it only been a year since the inauguration? <laughs> like that seems like a bazillion years ago. Years ago. It's time crazy. I feel like it's warping in those ways. Like it's going so fast and yet so, sl- I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I feel like we're living in some quantum experiment right now. Yeah. Um, Before I forget, I was just listening to a podcast when I was dropping off the kids. Um, It's a new, I don't know if it's new, but it's new to me, called The Experiment. And it's from Mm -hmm. WNYC Studios, which I love their podcast, and The Atlantic, like a collaboration. Mm -hmm. All of the episodes I've listened to have been fascinating. And then the episode they just posted today, November 18th, is called How Passing Upends a Problematic Hollywood History. And it's about this new Netflix movie from Rebecca Hall, who's an actress and writer. And it stars um, Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson. And it's about two light-skinned Black women, one who passes as white and one who doesn't. It's based on a novel from the 1920s. It looks fantastic. I can't wait to watch the movie. But the the um, episode, this podcast episode, interviews Rebecca Hall and her fascinating family history. She's a white woman, um, but it's much more complicated than that in her family's history. And the way she talks about it is so incredibly thoughtful and provocative. And it was just a really fascinating short, like half hour episode. Yeah. So if anybody's looking for another podcast it's great have you heard of this movie no i haven't heard about it at all so i have the podcast saved to listen to today since she sent it to me this morning there was also something that i listened to this week that i thought was very uh pertinent to our podcast and the why we do it um 
a friend mm. of mine posted a TEDx talk on Facebook by a woman named Valerie Alexander, and she's the CEO of a tech company, and I'm not sure which one because I didn't look up the details, but she mm. did a TEDx talk talk and you can find it on YouTube. It's called How to Outsmart Your Own Unconscious Bias. But one of the mm. things that she said in it that I was like, yes, yeah, this is the whole reason that we talk about everything is she said, I believe the biggest stumbling block to achieving true equality is unexamined behavior. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's just, if you don't look at what's happening, <sighs> if you refuse to acknowledge the way that our own biases influence our behavior and how that just impacts everything that we do, then nothing changes. And so it's like, I I feel like that's what we're trying to point out these unexamined behaviors, things we haven't recognized in ourselves. Unexamined. Like it's one thing to do self-reflection and be like, am I being a bitch? And then be like, no, you know, (laughs) it's another to do it within a really deep understanding of historical sociopolitical context. Mm -hmm. And I found myself writing in the margins of this chapter, context, 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 like understanding the specifics and the nuances of, of like when and where we are matters so much. So to me, that's, I don't know that that is what self-reflection is, is understanding that. But I think sometimes people are like, when they do self-reflection, white women in particular, what that means to them is, did I intend to harm somebody? I'm going to reflect on that. Mm-hmm. Nope, my intentions were good, so everything's right, fine. Right. And it's their problem. Yep. And that kind of self-reflection is not helpful. superficial and shallow actually, and really very bad. problematic. <laughs> yeah, it actually does way more harm than yeah, good. Yeah. Um, okay, this is a shameless plug, but there are a couple things I am also personally excited yes. about. Um, one, I had a book come mm-hmm. out this week that I'm super excited about. Mandy's for some reason got multiple copies. I think you're gifting them, but I laughed really hard. Like one for each room in your house. Like what is going on? Um, but I, it's called um, Social Studies for a Better World. I wrote it with one of my best friends, Noreen Asim Rodriguez. And it's all about um, for elementary education, what, what we need to be doing, what's going wrong, how we can, to your point, how we can reflect on that and look for the problems that might not register as problems at first to people who are white women in particular, which makes up the bulk of who teaches, are, teaches in elementary schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're interested in that, please check it out. You can get it on, you know, Amazon or whatever bookstore you use. Um, but I'm really excited yes. about it. And, and I, I also think it would... would recommend buying multiple copies. <laughs> for door door stops to prop up your computer when you're on a zoom call no 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 so i bought one for myself of course to keep but i also bought two <laughs> to give to my kids elementary school principal so one so she could keep it for herself but another one so she could either put it in the library or have it for other teachers in the school to read as well so Get yourself really a couple great. for your Thank you. for your schools and pass them along, or you know, yay, work on getting them banned. <laughs> so that, like, you know, there's, so yeah, they exactly. can be more there, publicized. <laughs> we don't care. Try to ban yeah. them. Do it. Let's have <laughs> do it, please. There are websites that I'm going to be disappointed if I'm not on. Yeah. Like, oh, I I guess that we haven't made a big enough dent if I haven't. Pissed you know, off some clicked the ire of <laughs> some PTO people or whatever, you know. Yeah, there's um there there's some website called 
I know I can't even remember. It's something like turn, turn, no left turn. Mm. That's what okay. it is. Okay. And it's like socialism. You know, it's like freaking out about any leftward movement in policies or politics or whatever. And they have banned book lists or like, here are all the books that you should be worried about. And a lot of them are, are truly baffling. Like hair love this really great picture book for little kids. That is a little girl yeah. and her dad. They're black. Super and it's cute. super sweet story mm-hmm. about her dad, like helping her do her hair. And it it's like, why? Like, because it features black characters mm-hmm. because it, it's not about your experience. Like, I don't know why that gets on the band book list, but pretty much they're just like, raging against anything that includes any um people of color characters of color queer characters anything so yeah, yeah. anyway we'll do, please, we're gonna do a mini sode on that so that's <laughs> yes we will if you're listening to this because you hate us great please try to um draw more attention to our work yep. by banning it that would be yeah. awesome um also this is completely random but i feel like it's very personally exciting i got my hair cut and it's the first time in my life i've ever liked a haircut oh, <laughs> like really deeply cute. enjoyed it yeah. thanks it's also still done from when she did it <laughs> so that's not i'm like never washing my hair because i can never do it that way uh, but it i don't know I, do you ever like never hair? no i haven't Speaking no i haven't liked my hair for a bazillion years genetics it's just not it's not great <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird thing i remember my mom always like we would compliment her like mom your hair looks great today and she's like oh thanks i'm getting it cut at four <laughs> like it was always the day of her haircut that she's like i finally like it and now it's time to get it cut um all right well we should probably get to it today i did there was some kind of tidying up from last time do you care if we start with some of this because yeah, yeah. i had a few rabbit holes that um, now let's do it. I, I also just noticed that decision. your name down on the bottom of the screen that we record for is Tired Mom. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. <laughs> yep. We we have an 18 month old kid who I think he's he's like learning a lot of words and he's right at that cusp where he knows how to say a lot but not enough to communicate mm-hmm, what he wants. Mm-hmm. And that has to be incredibly frustrating. Yep. So then the last two nights he's just spent from like six to eight crying Ugh. and fussing. And you're just like, damn it. Like nothing like cookie. And then we give him a cookie and then it's like, yeah, I don't want yeah, that. Yeah. Like something he's just, he wants something and he can't articulate it. And it's, you know, I feel for him and also us because it's, <laughs> I'm just going to say that doesn't get better. It just great. <laughs> great. I feel like my nine-year-old is oh, the same. same way. She cannot articulate what she wants, and so she's just been in this mood of like crying about everything. Then when you give her what she do wants, you know, she's mad about that too. And you're like, "What? What am I doing?" Well, I can't help you. Here's a box. <laughs> Climb inside. You know what I think happens though is like kids' feelings are just always a little bit bigger than what they can articulate mm-hmm. like when you think about like she's about to hit puberty mm-hmm. too when yeah. everything goes haywire so like just every time they develop linguistically or like their maturity they're able to kind of manage something their body like kicks them up a mm-hmm. notch and they're just always feeling more than they can say i feel that way sometimes honestly yeah yeah that's what i was gonna say you know, and it also doesn't get better when you're 40 something so. <laughs> it Okay. Um, I had forgotten. To, we're okay. We're reading this book. Oh yeah, um, we should say that. I forgot. Yeah. So Can yes, the book title is "Women of Color and the Reproductive Rights Movement" by Jennifer Nelson. Um, 
Yes. Yes. So there were some what the fuck moments that I had noted that we didn't end up talking about. So I have like a really quick bulleted list of that. And I want to hear what yours were too. Mm-hmm. And then I have um, a few rabbit holes for the organizations that she mentioned in the last section of the book. And then we can transition to talking about the young lords, which I thought this was absolutely fascinating, yeah. this chapter. Um, okay. So one what the fuck moment was that in Mississippi in 1958, there was a a bill proposed in the state legislature called the punitive sterilization bill, or that's like what the description is that proposed that if a woman gave birth to a second quote, illegitimate child, that that would be a felony punished either by sterilization or prison time. Oh, and it doesn't sound like it passed Mm -hmm. that it was proposed, but that was 1958. And I like, what Mm -hmm. the fuck? I, I couldn't believe that. I should never be shocked when we're reading this, but I'm, always shocked. Then in South Carolina in 1971, uh, a state legislature named Lucius Porth, which I definitely feel like is a made <laughs> name for like a white man in South Carolina, proposed that a woman on welfare with more than two children, if she got pregnant again, either had to give up welfare or be sterilized. Yeah. That was his yeah, idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in Ohio, Gene Damschroeder um, his, he proposed something similar and his quote was, if a man decides to live like an animal, he should be treated like an animal, which I thought was especially annoying mm-hmm. because this is a law for targeting women's bodies. Mm-hmm. So fuck, you can't even like include us in your insult about us. <laughs> Double fuck you. Um, and then California, Connecticut, Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, Iowa, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, Ohio, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia all also had these bills but of course never similarly proposing sex ed or birth control like that's to me what the giveaway is like it's not actually about anything but punishing women because if you really cared about this issue you would supplement it with like really robust awesome sex ed and really great access to birth control yeah but no No. um and then there were two more what the fucks that one was um that the we did know this when you were talking about uh, like the history of abortion sort of generally that a lot of hospitals had these committees where they would review requests for abortion mm-hmm. and like make a decision and that for many physicians wouldn't sterilize a white woman they they literally had a formula yeah, I remember the that formula. the number of the number of children she had given birth to multiplied by her age added up to 120 and that's when they would agree to, to sterilize a white yeah. woman, but definitely not women of yeah. color. I and mean, who the it was fuck literally... came up with that formula? What does <laughs> that even mean? Okay, then the last one, which tell me if you heard about this. It was a, a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court that GE refused employees disability payments for pregnancy related disorders or childbirth saying that pregnancy is quote unique and voluntary basically making it okay for them to not cover any costs medical costs associated with that and the supreme court allowed that mm-hmm. in 1977 mm-hmm. seems like something they would allow today what <laughs> i just hate everything well oh, i remember God. when we were talking about um this was sometime in this season of eugenics, but we were talking about how we were surprised that during Nixon's presidency, like there was so much funding for like family planning. Like this seems so strange that a president with Nixon's leanings would 
put so much into family planning. And again, it goes back to what you were saying just a little bit ago about context, like knowing the context Mm -hmm. in which they did it. And of course, it was not because they were trying to support women and like families and make things better for people. I mean, the underlying Mm -hmm. thing behind all of it was to try to control population among a very specific subset of people. Namely, poor mm-hmm. people and people of color. So when it was talking mm-hmm. about how um, Nixon established a five-year goal to provide contraception to all people unable to afford it, and he increased family planning spending from $48 million to $150 million over the course of those five years, um, and Congress passed the Family Planning Services and Population Research Act to achieve this goal, um, to provide contraceptive services to every poor woman on a voluntary basis. But it's like, it's those things that get passed that feel like some sort of a leftist victory, but then turns out to be really just eugenicist in mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. that it's designed. Which can also be left. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't want it to sound like people on the left weren't. No, I mean, I think for sure. It, trafficking and eugenics logic but that's right that's like how it passes. ulterior motives <laughs> like that's right? how it passes because right. all of us especially <sighs> the people in power at that time were a bunch of white people and so they all get behind that but there was a quote that kind of spoke to that where i was talking about the black nationalists um as i think it's in a publication called muhammad speaks in 1969 and he was talking about the fact that there's all this funding for birth mm-hmm. control and abortion and all of that um, at that time, but not funding for welfare. He said it, the article discussed the fact that while welfare for the living is held in suspension, the money spent on birth control has already been increased and is slated to increase even further. Um, he said they say they simply want poor families to have the same choice that families in middle or upper income levels have to plan the size and right. spacing of their families. But what he wrote next in there is kind of the position that was taken by the black nationalists um, and by black feminists in the 1970s. He said, certainly poor families should have this right, but shouldn't they also have the same right not to be poor? Shouldn't they have a right to the same education, the same adequate diet, the same medical treatment, the same sanitary and roomy housing conditions as middle Mm -hmm. and upper income levels Mm -hmm. have to plan the size and spacing of their families? So it's like mm-hmm. we just yeah. take this you know, one it, road. It, made, it makes me the really this whole book. I've been thinking a lot about how when abortion usually is discussed or pe- when I think about it, I think about it as pro-life or pro-choice or, you know, mm-hmm. I, there's anti-choice. Like I know people talk about different ways to frame it, but I think people would would call themselves either pro-life or call themselves pro-choice and how both of those are misnomers because pro-life people would say, well, you're actually, unless you are also advocating for all of these other policies, like it isn't comprehensive pro-life and with pro-choice, like it's actually not a real choice for a lot of people. And so unless you're considering all of these other things, it's not, people don't have equitable access to different options. So in both cases, like unless you expand your sense of what you're fighting for, neither of those positions take people in poverty or people in color, people of color, they don't take their needs into account or their situations into account. Like both positions are really narrowly imagined. Yeah. 
which was something I didn't expect to think about in when we started this. Yeah. Okay, there there are three groups I'm going to talk about, um, and then we can transition to the Young Lords. One is the Third World Women's Alliance. Um, Patricia Romney was part of this group, and she wrote a book called We Were There. Um, that, from what I've been able to read thus far, is really, really interesting. Um, there's a lot about the Third World Women's Alliance that you can find online. We'll link to some of it on our website, which is ourdirtylaundrypodcast.com, and it is not updated and I need to get to it. <laughs> See the beginning of this conversation for why that has not happened. Um, so basically, uh, the Third World Women's Alliance came about from women that were active in lots of different activism in the 60s, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was one of the leading organizations in the height of the civil rights movement. They were working on voter registration, um, federal civil rights legislation, like a lot of SNCC members were in Mississippi. They organized Freedom Summer to register black voters in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, black women were really a big part of those organizations. Then there was the National Black Anti-War Anti-Draft Union. There were all of these like reproductive rights groups and feminist groups that were like fermenting. Um, so and then that like, uh, yeah, other anti-war kind of efforts because, of course, Vietnam is going on. The Vietnam War is going on. Um, so in 1969, there were women that formed the Black Women's Liberation Committee to address this like combined set of issues from a Black women-centered perspective. And women like Gwendolyn Patton, Frances Beale, Mae Jackson, some of the women we talked about last week or last time, um, <clears throat> got it together. And then it really kind of snowballed from there. And then there, it developed into the Black Women's Alliance, which had like a black nationalist bent and Marxist bent, like there were um, different kind of branches. And then it, by 1970, so this is within a year, the members ended up reaching out to other women of color and then changed their name to the Third World Women's Alliance to reflect their membership expansion and their their political ideology Mm -hmm. expanding. And there were a lot of connections to Cuba the Cuban revolution had just happened and a lot of the members were really interested in the ideology of that revolution and a society that was free from racism and where women were equal in, in terms of power positions. And a lot of them traveled to Cuba. Um, and they even worked with what was called the Venicermos Brigade, which was a program founded in 1969 where activists from the left would go to Cuba and live and work for a while and like learn about the revolution and then come back to the U S and then they had kids even that were involved. They had like pen pals with Cuba, like all sorts of, of connections. Um, and their mission was to make a meaningful and lasting contribution. This is a quote to the third world community by working for the elimination of the oppression and exploitation from which we suffer. We further intend to take an active part in creating a socialist society where we can live as decent human beings free from the pressures of racism, economic exploitation, and sexual oppression. They called for quote communal households and the idea of the extended family sharing of all work by men and women guaranteed full equal and non-exploitative employment for women and end to rigid sex roles and homophobia um, and then claimed that third world women have the right and responsibility to bear arms, which I thought was super interesting and not um, something we've really uh-uh. talked a lot about in terms of all of this. But they were very, very, very intentionally trying to connect with um, women revolutionaries in the global south and seeing like colonialism, imperialism, 
capitalism, racism, sexism, homophobia, like all of that, they were able to see the ways that all of those were working together and wanting to to say, well, if we're going to fight these interlocking oppressions, we ourselves have to be in community with each other. Yeah. Um, so I think that's I where that was really- organizing for me gets so hard <laughs> where I get mm-hmm. like just overwhelmed by all of it because when you look at these mm-hmm. situations and put them in context, they are so complex and you really do need so many people involved. But then the question of how to do that, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, we have so much hard time course, like yeah. coordinating our own two schedules to record this podcast every week. <laughs> <I know. laughs> exactly. Let alone <sighs> like, you know, entire nations of people and their cultures and <laughs> everything. I so I, I, when I read this stuff, I just have so much even much more respect for these people for doing all of this because it's incredible. Most of them personally are struggling with like the problems of poverty and not having everything they need, but then they still were able to accomplish all of these things. It's amazing. Oh, sure. And remember like pre-internet, like they weren't like calling, even even (laughs) pre-cell phones. Like, I, I mean, I'm old enough to remember needing like a long distance like my mom's sister lived really far away our whole lives and they were really close. And so that all they, we could afford was like once a week, a phone call, a long distance phone call that they would have for like an hour. And we were not to interrupt my mom during that phone call, you <laughs> yeah. know, and it was just such a different time. So you're, you're thinking like without cell phones or without um like zoom calls or whatever it is, these women were internationally connecting and organizing. I just like, can't even, it's like card catalogs. Like that was the level mm-hmm. of technology and they were able to do these things. It's really amazing. Um, another organization from the early 1970s is the National Black Feminist Organization that uh, was Jennifer Nelson talks a lot about in the book. And it was launched in August 15th, 1973 by Margaret Sloan, the chair of the organization. Um, when she invited women to join black women, she within a day had 400 people that were like, yes, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. She just a little bit about her. She was born in 1947. She was a writer, a publisher, a civil rights activist, a feminist and a black woman who was also a lesbian. And her, I love this quote. I'm not black Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and a woman Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like this, this is where these ideas of intersectionality come Mm -hmm. in and, this idea of identity politics, not in the way that we might talk about it today, but like I bring my full self to these conversations and I cannot isolate any one part of it. She was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee and grew up in Chicago. When she was 14, she joined the Congress of Racial Equality, which was a group um, working on behalf of black people in Chicago on like issues of poverty. She, as a teenager, helped organize tenants unions, rent strikes, Mm. lead poisoning that was happening in her neighborhood all before she was old enough to vote. Mm. Get busy. And then um, at 17, she founded the Junior Catholic Interracial Council, which was, I thought this was so cool, a mix of suburban kids and inner city students who got together to talk about racism. In 1966, she worked with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference on marches in Chicago that were about housing discrimination, which um, a woman that I'm hoping that we get a chance to interview, she's um, a white woman from Iowa who went south in Freedom Summer and then became an assistant to Dr. King in Chicago. She talks about how 
he would say that's the most scared for his life he ever was, mm. was in the suburbs of Chicago, mm. that it was like the most um, intense opposition, which I think is just anyone who thinks that the North is like better, you know, it's just so much more complicated than that. So she became one of the first editors of Ms. Magazine. Hmm. She um, teamed up with this woman, Jane Galvin Lewis, and then Florence Kennedy, remember Mm -hmm. Flo, our middle finger cowboy hat (laughs) lady. Um, And they went on these tours to speak on college campuses in the seventies. I just like, Oh my God, for a time machine to go back to one of those events, like, wouldn't that just be amazing? And they basically were like networking and they, they got all these other black feminists together and started this national black feminist organization. She had a daughter, Kathleen Sloan, and they moved to Oakland where they um, started what's called the women's foundation. They also helped found the Berkeley women's center and a feminist school for girls, which like get it. Yes. And then um, just like her whole life was fighting for um, lesbian causes, feminist causes and um, civil rights. And she po- published a book of poetry called black and lavender in 1995 that were, I think like black referencing her racialized identity and lavender for lesbianism. Mm-hmm. Um, so this group then um, didn't last forever, but was, it, it had within a couple of years, 2000 members in 10 chapters across the United States and like just sort of an exponential increase though within a couple of years it had already disbanded. A few of the chapters lasted until the eighties. Um, it was super heterogeneous in terms of the politics of people. There were socialists and members of the national organization of women and a group called the radical lesbians who got involved. And there was, it was almost like too heterogeneous. So this is to that question, like, yeah, what's the, That's, what's the perfect mm-hmm. spot of where you have enough in common, you can move forward, but you aren't excluding other people that you shouldn't be excluding. That's just so tricky. They, there are, networks of black sororities that tend tend to be um more like less radical politically like more centrist or like gradual change sorts of people and and sometimes even get into like politics of respectability so there were disputes within those groups and then people like deciding that they their home organization they were representing was probably a better use of their time so it just sounds like kind of came together and then disbanded The last group is the Combahee River Collective. This was launched in 1974. All of this comes from this really, really beautiful New Yorker article by Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who's a professor at Princeton, um, about the Combahee River Collective. And it's, I, I loved reading this article. So the it was the NBFO that I just talked about, the National Black Feminist Organization, that had a chapter in Boston that broke away from the NBFO. And they named themselves the Combahee River Collective after Harriet Tubman, mm. who that is like another mini said we should do because her life is just so incredibly fascinating that she led um, a Union Army raid. You know how they're thinking of like renaming military mm-hmm. bases? Her, her name gets brought up because she was like a brilliant military strategist mm-hmm. and was actually in charge of this raid. She liberated 750 enslaved people in South Carolina. Um, and so this was a way to honor Harriet Tubman, but also highlighting like the kind of strategy that they believed in, like radical get it done action. So basically they were inspired to action because they were, like you said, themselves, black women, uh, many of them were lesbians that many of them had that themselves been on welfare had struggled 
with poverty. And they said it's not cool that black women who try to use public welfare so that they can spend more time caring for their children get demonized as freeloaders. Mm -hmm. But then white women who choose to work, who choose to be like stay at home moms are celebrated like the paragons of virtue and womanhood. And they're just like, what the fuck is that? And so, um, you know, kind of like classic story. Plus this is all combined with everything like we've been talking about with eugenics and reproductive rights, et cetera. So here it's a small group, but it has some serious badasses. So Barbara Smith and her twin sister, Beverly Smith, Demita Frazier from the Black Panther Party in Chicago, Cheryl Clark, Akasha Hull, Margot Okazawa Ray, Charlene McRae, and Audre Lorde, mm-hmm. um, which is a name I recognize mm-hmm. as a famous poet and activist. So they were frustrated with the feminist movement. They were fr- just kind of same story, like frustrated with all of these places. They also were super inspired by anti-colonial movements that were happening in Algeria and Vietnam and, you know, these places in the global South that were pushing against European, quote, Western American uh, imperialism and saw themselves as revolutionaries that went way beyond their role as women. They were anti-capitalist. Um, they, like I said, most of them were lesbians. So this, this is from the New York article. Theoretically rich and strategically nimble, the Combahee River Collective imagined a course of politics that could take Black women from the margins of society to the center of a revolution. Because Black women were among the most marginalized people in the country, their political struggles brought them into direct conflict with the intertwined malignancies of capitalism, racism, sexism, and poverty. Thus, the women of the CRC believed that if Black women were successful in their struggles and movements, they would have an impact far beyond their immediate demands. As they put it, if black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free Mm -hmm. since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all the systems of oppression, Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was incredibly beautiful. And because they were queer black women, um, this was, they were also addressing issues of sexual identity. And so they're really the foundation of this idea of intersectionality in a lot of ways that, that, no, you can't be reduced to just your gender or just your race or just your class. Like you have to think about it all in really sort of complex ways. Yeah. Um, have you heard about them before or read? They've got this like famous statement where they talk about their position. I feel like it is like, familiar, but I don't, I don't know that I didn't know the details, but the name sounds is triggering something. They, this is a beautiful quote, I think. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking 10 paces behind. To be recognized as human, lovely human, is enough. Um, they say, we believe that sexual politics under patriarchy is as pervasive in black women's lives as are the politics of class and race. Uh, we also find it difficult to separate race from class from sex oppression because in our lives, they are most often experienced simultaneously. And they talk specifically about the history of rape of black women by white men. They say, although we are feminists and lesbians, we feel solidarity with progressive black men and do not advocate the factionalization that white women who are separatists demand. Our situation as black people necessitates that we have solidarity around the fact of race, which white women, of course, do not need to have with white men unless it is their negative solidarity as racial oppressors. Mm -hmm. We struggle together with black men against racism, while we also struggle with black men about sexism. We realize the liberation of all oppressed peoples necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. We are socialists because we believe that work must be organized for the collective benefit of those who do the work and create the products, not for the profit of the bosses. And they go on about capitalism. But I mean, really, this statement is like unbelievable. It's so, so good. There's a reason it's iconic and it's a great read. So we'll link to Mm -hmm. it. But I thought that was a really good segue where they were 
clearly they held really beautifully. Like we want our identities to be highlighted and foregrounded, but as a way to recognize our humanity, not as a way to be divisive, like not as a way to pit us against each other, just to say, here's who I am in this space. Who are you in this space? Like, let's come together. And I, I think in debates right now about divisive concepts bills, it's, that's where this it's it's such a broken, ignorant understanding of intersectionality to say, oh, you're just trying to pit people against mm-hmm. each other or you're just playing the race card or blah, blah, blah. Instead of saying like, no, what what identity politics was originally about as defined by the Combi River Collective is this is who we are in our full humanity. It's complicated. It's complex. Like this is the only way we can move forward is if we acknowledge all these things and we want to do it together. Yeah. Like. And the, the, I thought the Young Lords chapter, they were super clear, the Puerto Rican women involved with the Young Lords, that they did not want to be a separatist group either. Like, we're going to show up here as women and we were, we're explicitly anti-sexist, but we have to be in conversation with our brothers because they're the problem and we have to educate them. And so we have to be in this work together. We have different roles, you know, like we might have to educate them about this, but we are collaborators in this work and and they they were also not really interested in like a super separatist space yeah. for just women which i thought was really interesting so let's yeah. get into the young words yeah. let's what were your kind of where do you want to um, start what were your well takeaways? okay so i'm going to tell you i don't i i haven't gotten through all of this so <laughs> so i think i mean in the part in in the beginning, at least, I focused mainly on um, the focus on inadequate health care, probably just because that's where I where work, work and where I'm at all of the time. So yeah. particularly in that opening story, again, like the context of these, all of these things that are ha- happening and when they're happening, I was really um, moved by the story where it talks about how right after the new abortion law went into effect in New York. So we talked about that, I think, in the mm-hmm. first episode, that they legalized mm-hmm. abortion up to 24 weeks, which in a way set back the discussion on abortion because um, it just kind of shut down what they were trying to do to get it completely not a legalized issue at all. Oh, right. You know, like the, the what, what were they called? The red yeah. stockings, like worried that if you compromise, then it legitimates their arguments and we don't want that right like they're they're fully wrong so we shouldn't yeah we shouldn't be yeah accepting these partial victories or not actual victories at all um but this story that i wasn't aware about at all is that there was a 31 year old puerto puerto rican woman 18 days after that law went into effect was named carmen rodriguez who died Mm -hmm. during a legal abortion that was performed um and that um, that instance itself kind of like revolutionized Puerto Rican women to again say like this law did not help us. So there was a woman um, who was the health captain of the Young Lords, um, Gloria Cruz, and she basically said this this a new plan for limitation of our population was passed the abortion law under this new method we are now supposed to be able to go to any of the city butcher shops and receive an abortion these are the same hospitals that have been killing our people for years so as like middle class and upper class white women when we see these sorts of policies passed we can take that as a victory because 
a lot of us live in areas where we trust the medical system and Mm -hmm. we have medical Mm -hmm. systems that work for us and that always have. Mm -hmm. But then in these populations, the access to they that they have to healthcare is extremely different from what we have. Um, Well, in her Carmen Rodriguez's death was directly linked to this inadequate system. Like, not understanding her medical record, having like an intern practicing things on her without understanding that she had these other pre-existing conditions and like just really shitty, a shitty standard of care at the hospital that she was attending. So it wasn't like, oh, she, she happened to die during an abortion. It it was like a, my read of it was, it was totally preventable if they had had decent medical workers attending to her right. who were doing their actual job instead of being incompetent and careless and then it sounds like the hospital did some kind of like report or something was like well nothing to see here and then the young lords which we'll talk a little bit more about who the young lords were but they were like no 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 we're we're doing our own investigation and we don't trust you to call yourselves out for your bullshit and in fact we have a right to health care that we control because we care about our people and understand and we're not going to let this kind of stuff happen now of course not that people you know who get sick still won't die but you you want to have some trust that basic boxes are going to get checked or even like sanitation it sounds like the just the hospital itself was like really underfunded and didn't have just wasn't a place you were going to get good care right and that all leads to much bigger issues of how all of these things get funded and why there's not access to care mm-hmm. in a lot of these areas um and again, it's just that that unexamined consequences of these policies and how oh, wow. it all trickles down mm-hmm. um, and then affects these individual people. Um, they said the realities of inadequate health care at Lincoln, which is the hospital she was at, and other public hospitals, long waits for emergency room care, exhausted and hurried interns as medical staff, the lack of provisions for drug treatment and pre and postnatal care, rundown accommodations... And Carmen Rodriguez's death provided a context for the dire warnings espoused by Cruz and other people of color. So it was basically like a, this is the context that this is happening in. And for us, this policy is not at all a win. Yeah, this is. Well, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the background of the Young Lords because I thought this group sounded just incredible and, and their tactics were super interesting and the way that the women like immediately asserted themselves and and the strategy that they did for it, I thought was amazing. So this is 1968 in Chicago, which that is like peak politicization of folks in Chicago um, for sure. And Chacha Jimenez, a young Puerto Rican activist uh, founded the young Lords organization, which Jennifer Nelson describes as a politicized street gang, Mm -hmm. very in some ways similar to the black Panther party. Like, we don't we know for a fact that the states like whether it's municipal state level federal level that the government is not designed for us and that they are failing mm-hmm. us and so they had a 13 point platform much like the black panther party's 10 point platform they but distinct because they also were demanding puerto rican independence mm-hmm. um not statehood but straight up independence from the us right. so they had like a i don't like a unique sort of nationalist connection to Puerto Rico, obviously. And they were also um, 
super multi-ethnic and multiracial as a reflection of who's even in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. So like a really diverse group right off the bat. Um, so in, in those kinds of like culturally in those ways, different than the Black Panther Party as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in New York, it sounds like the chapter got started with Denise Oliver, Robert Ortiz and Mickey Melendez and that they quickly became like the most powerful branch of the young lords or like the most active it sounded like um they the one their first political action i thought was so interesting that was the trash one right yeah yeah do you remember um, anything about this yeah in 1969 they were protesting yes. the sanitation department um they were saying they ne- for not doing a yeah, job <laughs> they were not providing service to poor and black latino yeah. neighborhoods so they began a community sanitation project so where they worked in groups to basically clean up what they were saying the new york sanitation department was not doing um but, but the way that they were doing that they so they piled all of the trash into heaps of the street and blocked traffic so that the sanitation department wouldn't have a choice but to get it out of the Basically way. Basically to force their hand. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And in New York City, like block streets are <laughs> yeah, gonna know, run it things. immediately pisses everybody mm-hmm. off. So yeah, well you just think about like whether it's policing, sanitation, healthcare, like none of these systems doing their job and actually actively harming people. Like if you don't have trash pickup, it's not like, oh, it just doesn't look nice. Like that's that's a a public health problem. Yeah. You know? Um there's really interesting research even about neighborhoods that have um, potholes on streets, Mm -hmm. like when there's not good street repair, which of course is in predominantly lower income neighborhoods, which there's also a correlation between neighborhoods that are also higher numbers of people of color. And that there, because there are these potholes haven't been fixed, rain water collects in them. And then that's perfect for a mosquito breeding ground, which of course mosquitoes carry disease. Mm -hmm. And so you have like higher rates of, mosquito-borne illnesses in neighborhoods, even within a city, because the city can't get a shit together to repair streets in these neighborhoods. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the, the, the domino effect mm-hmm. is so incredibly frustrating and heartbreaking. Um, the next protest, they took over a church yeah. that refused to help them, basically, <laughs> just to run their social programs. So they had free breakfast for kids, a health clinic, a daycare center, also modeled on the Black Panthers' work, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, they had a liberation school, um, classes, entertainment, like, just like a community yeah. center. Which my question um, is, what why, what was the refusal about? Like, <laughs> and then like, what did it take? Like, we're going to occupy your building to offer food your and childcare. By like, the way, in your basement, like you're, what are you, what are you using your basement right. for? Like storage? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, they're not occupying yeah. it with armed forces to, I don't know, do whatever people do, but they're like trying to help well, the community. Like this is not okay, a negative. Yeah. You're a church yeah. also. Like, <laughs> What? Yeah, yeah I can't. Yeah. Let me tell you this story, and then we can maybe like do a pause and then go down these rabbit holes, like a yeah. part two next yeah, week, yeah. hopefully next yep. week. Um, but this, I've actually thought about this a lot for like climate change stuff and climate justice. Like, what? I'm so inspired by young mm-hmm. people and the walkouts they've been doing. It's like, what can grownups do? And and I'm also frustrated with like our kids' grandparents' generation, like the baby boomer Mm -hmm. generation, like what if we just boycotted grandparents? Like, okay, you can't see your, you can't see your grandkids Mm -hmm. until you 
are taking actionable climate justice steps in your either personal life or your politics or whatever, like I actually think a grandkid boycott, like what do grandparents, what are they living for right mm-hmm. now? Honestly, their grandkids. And it's like, okay, you can't hang out with them. Um, until you do something like I know not all grandparents have money for like electric cars or solar panels, but some of them do. And that is great. Or like even just who you vote for, like don't vote for people that don't believe in climate change. Stop ruining things for your grandchildren who I know you love and want really great lives for. But guess what? They're going to be living in like a dystopic (laughs) Mad Max situation. Mm -hmm. Like that's not Mm -hmm. great. So anyway, I've been thinking a lot about, this kind of approach. Yeah. So the they women were there from the very, very beginning. Um Iris Morales, Denise Oliver, Gloria Fontanez um are some of the folks that, that the book mentions. And they made up nearly half of the membership, but they weren't really part of the leadership right away. And that they were nervous because um one they were basically they were really inspired by the Black Panther Party. But there were there in black politics, there were different branches of what was happening too. So the black nationalism that was not affiliated with the Black Panther Party. Um in particular there was a poet, oh gosh, and now I can't think of the poet's name, Amiri Baraka, who lived in Newark, New Jersey. And it was like a really Afrocentric, but very like machismo Afrocentrism. Um that that was like another kind of approach to black nationalism that was happening. And so members of the young Lords go to, to this poet's house basically to kind of see, does it make more sense for us to align ourselves with you guys or with the black Panthers? Like who should we be like hooked Mm -hmm. up with basically? And so um, one of the women goes with them Oh my God. I want to say Denise Oliver. Yeah. Goes with the other young Lord leaders who are dudes to go meet up with this poet and just like feel out like, Hey, should we be in solidarity with each other? What's the, what's the deal? And so she describes her shock and outrage. This is a direct quote from Jennifer Nelson's book at the scene that unfolded when the Lords arrived at Baraka's headquarters, quote, women crawled into the room on their hands and knees, wearing elaborate headdresses decorated with fruit. They accompanied Baraka's coterie of male guards and supporters who wore dashikis and gave power handshakes to the male Lords. So she begins questioning Baraka, the leader about women's role in his organization. And like, why do you have women on your hands and knees giving fruit to you from their heads? Mm-hmm. And then he, he refu- he just totally ignores her and only will address the mm-hmm. men in the room. And she's like, Oh no, we're not. Mm-hmm. And so then the young Lords, they leave and she leaves like halfway through the meeting. She's like, fuck this. So the young Lords like gather next, like, what do you think? Should we join? <laughs> group? And she's like, uh, no. And she, so she gets back from that meeting. She calls the women of the young lords together. And she's like, ladies, this just happened. And this is the quote. I told them that if we didn't do something, we would end up on our hands and knees with fruit on our heads. <laughs> so th- she, they're like, we have to do something really drastic so that our brothers in this movement know that that's not okay with mm-hmm. us. So they decide on um, this is Iris Morales, um, Denise Oliver and others that they're, they debated about having their own feminist group, like to break away Mm -hmm. the way that a lot of women did in other like more radical organizations. But they said, no, we want to do this with our brothers, but they need to get their shit Mm -hmm. together. So um, influenced, this is a quote from the book, influenced by Aristophanes play Lysistrata, 
They declared they would have no sexual relations with young lords men until the Central Committee met their demands, which included adding women to the Central Committee, elevating women to other positions of power, eradicating the call for revolutionary machismo from the platform, and integrating the Defense Committee by gender. So they're like, you're not going to get any until you... I feel like this is a strategy women have used. <laughs> and Over time. Before, yeah. honestly. <laughs> Well, and what was really interesting was that the Young Lords already had a policy that you could only hook up with people within the group Mm. because they were worried about, um, like, FBI infiltration and, like, undercover, which they had every right to be because COINTELPRO was happening. Like, that's a real thing. So they just didn't trust. They had this, like, no, you know, like, no sex outside of the group policy. And so this, then the ladies are like, all right, then. Guess what? You've you've committed to only having sex with these women and we're committed to not having sex with you until oh, you, you become get us like we're full members mm-hmm. of this organization. And so a few of the leadership men like kind of go off the radar for a couple of weeks <laughs> and they find out that they were hooking up with women like of outside course. of like the group. Of and so luckily some of the men were like, that's not cool. And now you've you've broken that fundamental rule that you helped make. Mm-hmm. So now you start over at the bottom. Like you can come back into the group, but you have to be just like a regular member and we're going to promote women into your spots mm. basically. So it that, works. Yeah, the sex strike backfired against worked. those men and worked for the women. Hmm. I know. I was just like, wow. And I'm sure that was hard because it's like kind of punishment for the women too, in a way. Like <laughs> I think sometimes like sex strike implies that women don't want to have sex anyway. Right. So like great, <laughs> which honestly sometimes is true. But I, I, I think wow, yes. Again, to this idea of like grandkid boycott, like those. What is it that people on a daily level like that matters most to them? And think about like, hey, if you. If you want us around for romantic relationships, guess what? You also have to have us around for political mm-hmm, collaboration. Mm-hmm. Or like, hey, guess what? You love your grandkids. I appreciate that. Then stop doing things that are making it really, really hard for them to have a good future. Like they're directly connected yep. um, consequences, I guess. Yep. So, yeah, I thought I thought that was cool. It also, I thought this was neat that they um, didn't say to the men, you can't be men. Or like we were down with machismo. They they said we don't want this kind of machismo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We want equality for women. Machismo must be revolutionary, not oppressive. Under capitalism, our people have been oppressed by both society and our own men. The doctrine of machismo has been used by our men to take out their frustrations against their wives, sisters, mothers, and children. Our men must support their women in their fight for economic and social equality and must recognize that our women are equals in every way within the revolutionary ranks. Forward, sisters, in the struggle. And they really then said, look, being a man, being like a good, strong man means treating women as comrades and like respecting them and make like we're all here together. That's what it means to be a good man. And so as a result, this the Young Lords um, like chauvinism was not cool. And women and children both were like at the center of their movement, which I thought was really cool. Um, and again, that they really stress this need that here, this was another quote I thought was great. The basic criticism we have of our sisters and women's liberation is that they shouldn't isolate themselves because in isolating yourselves from your brothers and in not educating your brothers, you're making the struggle separate. 
That's again another division, the same way that capitalism has divided blacks from Puerto Ricans and Puerto Ricans from whites and blacks from whites. I mean, they're definitely meeting as women mm-hmm. to talk about these things. So it's not like they aren't having any time, just the ladies, but they're saying we need to to like at the end of the day come back yeah, together. Like let's be allies to do... and not work against each other and all have the exactly. same common goal. Be on the same page. Mm-hmm. They they were really specific to that white women, the white women's feminism was really separatist mm-hmm. that excluded women of color, at least like didn't make room for them. And then same with men, because it made white middle-class women's progress the priority. Mm-hmm. Preferably, Jennifer Nelson says, women would lead men to reject sexism, not by excluding them, but by teaching them about power imbalances that involve sexual difference. The Lords argued that the division of feminism from the anti-racism movement prevented the real revolution from taking place. If white women just garnered power for themselves, nothing would really mm. change. They asserted that, quote, racism has to be eliminated and that whole division of male from female has to be eliminated. And the only way you can do that is through political education. I don't believe that a group of women should get together just to educate themselves and then not go out and educate the brothers, which to me was like a rebuke of the consciousness raising groups. Like, sure, do those. But there's this like other piece that you're missing if you aren't also in community with the people who are causing you the problems. It just was such a, a different yeah. Way of thinking about it. And I really, I really appreciated it. I don't know. What's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, I think these are things that we are obviously still struggling with. Like when they say that, mm-hmm. you know, white women were just basically working to their own advantage and that you're not going to change anything if you're doing it that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen that come true. That's the position right. that we're <laughs> in right now. So I feel like this is the ideology we need to go back and question and try to get right this time instead of just mm-hmm. reproducing it. Um, we need to, I've felt, I've had this conversation um, with Josh even recently, because I'll make all of these little comments about, you know, whatever, Last night it was a commercial. So this is what I'm thinking. The story that I was thinking of, there was some commercial where a guy was going to a grocery store to pick up his prescription. He's like talking to his wife who's in another room. He's yelling, honey, I'm going to go get my prescription. And then in the next scene, he's at the pharmacy picking up the prescription and he has their baby with them. And I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's completely unrealistic. (laughs) No man took their baby with them to the store. While their wife was at home, I was like happening to no white family anywhere. And Josh immediately was like, oh, come on, that's not you can't say that. And I was like, no, stop doing that. Like, stop that reaction right there. Like, just because you would do that, you don't need to defend all the other white men who are out there because they're not doing it. Like, just take the time to recognize that you may be not an exception yeah, that you're the exception and you don't right. need to defend the fact that most men are not the exception. And I think that those that that's on a very small level, the thing that white women don't do, like we don't push back enough against mm. those kinds of ideologies, I think. And these women obviously did that mm. so well. They obviously were like, mm. you know, okay, fine, you're helping us. You're in solidarity with us, but really be in solidarity with us. Like, call like, these really, other things out. Right. Like, change these things yeah, that are that's... a problem. Don't mm-hmm. just say you support us and we're all here in this group. Like, really push against the things yeah, that are but, causing yeah. the problem. 
I I mean, I will say like my husband is a thousand percent the person who, who also would, would take me. <laughs> He's like, yeah. do you, need it? you know, like I'll take the kid, whatever. And be the person to even like, remember that there needs to be a prescription <laughs> picked up. I am like the <laughs> scatterbrained nightmare part of this couple. So yes, like I know that there are people who would, but what I hear you saying is like, it's not just enough to not be shitty. Right. Like, great. Mm-hmm. That's great. But you also have to understand that you are an exception and that there that there's these larger forces and systems and structures that you have an obligation to be dismantling. So I'm thrilled that you aren't that right. but like thoughtless person who thinks that my job is to like remember everything and take care. If anything, my husband's like, could you please remember things a little bit more? (laughs) That would be great. But it's, it's like the difference between saying, Oh, we do everything 50, 50. So it's fair. It's like, well, but I, and this, this again is just thinking through the lens of like being a woman in a sexist, patriarchal, misogynistic society. Like even if you and I within the confines of our home do everything 50, 50, I'm still navigating a lot of bullshit outside Mm -hmm. that, you aren't Mm -hmm. and so there like there's other stuff that needs to happen for it to feel yeah right which i think honestly my husband is actually really good at too but i imagine it's the same way that i feel about like my interracial friendships like i hope i'm not a shitty white person i try really hard not to be a shitty white person in community with my friends who i care a lot about but it's i have to think about like it's not just me not doing the things that are annoying like me not microaggressing against you all the time in our interpersonal relationship is like the base like that's like the right, bare minimum right. that if i'm not also recognizing acknowledging like all this other stuff and that i don't see it as my responsibility to try to do something about that then our friendship can only go so yep. far you know yep. um yeah i don't yeah. know Eesh. but obviously well, some good um examples to learn from so I appreciate being well, that, able to read about it so we can get more into um, the rest of this chapter next time. Yeah, let's let's do that. Okay. Let's say, um, and if anyone's following along, this is chapter four, um, the Young Lords and their idea for like community public health. Um, I really want to get into this organization called Carasa is super interesting. So I think. We can probably, I mean, we always say we're going to make more progress than we do, but. um, I know. I was also thinking about that this morning as I was reflecting on coming up on a year of starting this. I was like, we put together our little, you know, like thought list of all of the topics we were going to talk about. And I think I remember there being around like somewhere between over more than 20, less than 30 like topics. And I was like, oh, that'll last us like we've got a good like six to eight months of material. And it's like <laughs> we got through two of those topics in the past and I think we could, 11 we months. We could still circle back and, and do more with them. Exactly. exactly. Like there's, there's like, so much oh, more we could even yeah, do. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, well, I am grateful to everyone who's listening. Of course, thank you for your patience with us. We love hearing from people. I feel like we've gotten more emails in the last couple of weeks. Maybe people are just like, mad that guys, we're not guys. So it's like, hi. <laughs> We're out here. But I'm Katie at our dirty laundry podcast.com. And I'm K-A-T-Y. Yeah, Mandy with a Y as well. M A N D Y at our dirty laundry podcast.com as well. Yeah. We love love to hear from people. Um and we're gonna finish this up next week. So okay. we'll talk to you all soon. All right. Bye guys. Have a good one. Bye.